Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show, Robert Kaplan, best-selling author of the new book, The Good American, the epic life of Bob Gassoni, the US government's greatest humanitarian. Uh, Bob, welcome to Bookstack. It's my pleasure to be here with you, Richard. Uh, so who was Bob Gassoni? Uh, Bob Gersoni is like a neurotic character out of a Saul Bellow novel who finds himself in Joseph Conrad-like settings in the developing world. He was uh, the son of Holocaust refugees who, who never went to college, dropped out of high school, went to Vietnam, and then went to start a language school in Guatemala. Um, and it was there that he was discovered by the United States Agency for International Development. And to make a long story short, he would spend the next 40 years going from one uh, war zone and disaster zone to another in the developing world, interviewing not dozens, but hundreds of refugees and displaced persons in every place over four decades and finding out truth that he would bring back to policymakers in Washington that often made uh, U.S. foreign policy a, a little bit more humane and more and smarter at the same time. He had a dramatic effect on policy um, in the Cold War and the post-Cold War, even though he was a mere freelance contractor. Yeah, I mean, he does 8,000 plus interviews in 54 assignments. Uh, and yet, as you show, he, there's something touchingly vulnerable, shy even and about him. Um, and he gets nervous about every assignment that he does. Yes, he's the opposite of a great man. Because a great man is somebody who has a, a high degree of ambition, calculation. It's, those things are necessary to be great. He is a good man, the good American, who, uh, as, as two, uh, two officials as ID put it, when you, when you first were going to meet Bob or Sony, you expect, given what he accomplished, you expected a Cary Grant-style figure, uh, swashbuckling, and you met a very, very um, humble, quite neurotic person who is terrified of getting things wrong, of not coming back with the truth. In this era of fake news and whatever you want to call it, Bob Gersoni's life was dedicated to finding out facts on the ground. Yeah, you actually start the book uh, with a quote from Graham Greene that true glory is a private and discreet virtue. I mean, you were picking up on that there. I mean, if if he's not great, do you think that he does achieve a certain amount of glory? Yes, he does. He certainly does. We can go through his assignments. But um, as Elliot Abrams, who back in the 1980s was the Assistant Secretary of State for Humanitarian Affairs, puts it in the book, um, listening to a briefing from, with Bob Ger from Bob Gersoni was memorable because here you are as an assistant secretary and you, you get briefings from the CIA, from the State Department, from wherever, and yet nothing is like getting briefed by Bob Gersoni because he brought back real, vivid, 
recollections, you know, based on serious research and hundreds of interviews of what the what U.S. policy, real the effect of U.S. policy on individual men and women, peasants, small time farmers in the developing world. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, I mean, you say in the book that he's he's someone who's looking to integrate a concern for human rights within a framework of national interests. So, as you just said there, it's that notion that foreign policy can't ignore human concerns, but equally, it can't ignore the American interest. Exactly. Um uh, you know, we have a lot of purists in this world who think that humanitarianism has to rise above policy uh, for some uh, 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 for some reason. Uh, but but that's that's absurd because America is a great power. It's not Sweden, so it has national interests. Um, and and uh, and what Bob Gersoni did for his life from the time he got out of the army in Vietnam until he retired a few years ago was to integrate humanitarian concerns in the hierarchy of interests of, of, of the United States. And because he was sensitive to U.S. national interests, high policymakers would take him seriously and would in, and would integrate. Sony's own recommendations for what should be done to make policy more humane. And that's one of the reasons why he ends up being respected by the likes of George Shultz, who passed away this week. Yes, um, it's an interesting story. Um, Gerson, in the in the in the 1980s, throughout the 1980s, people who are not of a certain age won't remember this. But throughout the 1980s, the, uh, there were wars, uh, you know, vast panoramic wars across southern Africa, in Angola, in Mozambique, and elsewhere, because the Portuguese Empire had crumbled. And, and and the Cubans, the Soviets, the white South African uh, Afrikaners were and the West were all fighting for the spoils. And the and the United States government, President Reagan's uh, government was gearing up to support the Renamo guerrillas in Mozambique as part of the Reagan doctrine. And Gersoni went in his typical way to Mozambique, spent about three months there, traveled across the country, it's 1,500 miles long, traveled the length and breadth of the country, interviewing hundreds of refugees and displaced persons, and came back with news. And the news he brought back was that Renamo were a bunch of murderers with no policy whatsoever, whereas UNITA in Angola was worth supporting against the communists there. Renamo was not worth supporting. And in the, to make a long story short, after months of sleeping in a sleeping bag, in, in the war in the war zone of Mozambique, Gersoni comes back to Washington. And in his typical fashion of about two weeks later, briefed directly Secretary of State George Schultz. And this leads to, and Schultz listens to Gersoni for an hour. And the result is that Schultz briefs President Reagan and Reagan changes the policy. 
Henceforth, Renamo would not get aid from, uh, from the United States under the Reagan doctrine. The result of that was that the, uh, the civil war in Mozambique started to gr- ground down to a halt, and that had an effect in easing uh, the South African government to begin the transition away from apartheid. I mean, it's worth saying that where Bob Gassoni goes, this is the opposite of a bucket list, isn't it? He ends up in every place you don't want to be at the particular moment that he's there. There's war, famine, genocide, natural disaster. Essentially, if you ever see Bob Gassoni coming, it's time to get out. Yes, exactly. I, I mean, you know, we talk about great foreign correspondents who've covered, you know, many of the wars uh, or natural disasters. And we talk about great, we talk about deep reporting when someone goes to a place and interviews dozens of people about a particular issue. But Bob Gersoni was almost everywhere. And in almost every case, interviewed many dozens, if not hundreds. So it was a step or two beyond deep reporting and comprehensive reporting. He basically gave an alternative history of the later Cold War and the immediate post-Cold War. Uh, You know, a history from the ground up rather than from the top down. It was all about geopolitics, but but how geopolitics was affecting peasants, farmers, victims. I mean, you mentioned uh, foreign correspondents there. You yourself are one of the America's most storied foreign correspondents. And there are elements of memoir here that, uh, in a way, it's almost a parallel life, it seems to me, because you're often uh, somewhere just before or just after Bob Gassoni, but, uh, but you do run across him um, in action at particular times during your own career. Yes, yeah. There is a par- it, this is what you put your finger on what drew me to the story. Um, what drew me to the story initially was I knew I've known Bob Gersoni for 35 years. We first met in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan in 1985, uh, during the great Ethiopian famine and the, and the massive refugee exodus that, that ignited across Ethiopia into Sudan. Um, But and though I was conscious of him throughout my career and though we crossed paths in the way that you said, um, it wasn't until four years ago when the two of us had dinner together that that I asked him where he went to college. And it seemed to me that someone who had worked his whole life for the State Department and USAID would have gone to a very prestigious liberal arts college. When he said he never went to college, that stunned me. And when he said he never graduated from high school, that stunned me even more. So I knew then that, the, you know, that there was something here, a real story. And, you know, we, we individually kind of evolved our own way of interviewing refugees, ignorant of what the other was doing, but as it turned out, was very similar. And we were both, you know, in a non-ideological logical form. We were conservative. You know, we were moderate conservative, pessimistic sorts. And Gerson, you know, Gersonis was a constructive pessimist where he was always worried about what could go wrong in a particular place. And he was determined to prevent it from happening. Um, you know, and that's not really that unusual because 
the founding fathers of the American Revolution were constructive pessimists. Just read the Federalist Papers. They thought of everything that could possibly go wrong in their new construct of a political system and thereby prevented it. Yeah, I found that element fascinating, actually. I mean, as you say, he calls himself a conservative, a, a pessimist. But there's, there, there is also a link, uh, I think, with a previous guest on the podcast, John Eikenbury, because it did seem to me that, that Gassoni is a kind of a rational, rules-based, empirical, liberal internationalism in action, almost. Exactly. Exactly. Conservatism a sensibility he has. It's not a doctrine. Um, and I think that's the way to look at it. And particularly, one of the, um, one of the key points of Gersoni's career was that he operated at a time when ideology was much less present in the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development. In one chapter, I go into how Gersoni solved the problem of the Vietnamese boat people. And he did it by working with, you know, with, you know, as someone who is very neoconservative, the Assistant Secretary of State for Asia at that time in the 80s, Paul Wolfowitz. And at the same time, Wolfowitz and Gersoni were cooperating with the ambassador to Thailand, U.S. ambassador to Thailand, John Gunther Dean, and the uh, deputy chief of mission in Thailand, Chas Freeman, who were like the ultimate like wasp aristocrat realists. And yet they all worked together because this was an era before the Berlin Wall fell, before the Iraq War, you know, you know, in, in an age when divisions between people and their beliefs were muted, so everyone worked together much better than today. Yeah, it's one of the interesting paradoxes, actually, in the book. As you said earlier, he's this character who dropped out of high school, he served in Vietnam, and almost falls into his career when his girlfriend's uh, anthropology professor sends him off to uh, Guatemala and kind of recognises something in him. And that's very that's a great contrast with the kind of striped pants diplomacy that we sometimes think of with the the State Department. And yet, as you show, this is a golden age of American diplomacy. And very often, the on-the-ground ambassadors and State Department representatives are also doing a very good job and are integral to Gassoni's first his training uh, and then his success. Yeah, I, there was another element to Gersoni's story. It was an age before the internet, before social media, when one traveled around war zones with a notebook and pen, pen and pencil, when even a tape recorder was seen as suspicious to unsophisticated African and Central American border guards. Um, so there was not an illusion of knowledge where none actually existed. People knew that they knew nothing about what was going on beyond the capital and the war zone. And it was necessary to go there to find out, to bring back truth. Uh, today, there's this illusion of knowledge because of social media and the internet where very little actually exists. We think we understand what's going on in Ethiopia's war-torn Tigray province, but we have no idea unless, of course, we go there. 
And I'm sure a visit all through Myanmar would elicit truths and perceptions, none of which have gotten into the media so far. So there was this acceptance of the fact, uh, you know, an acceptance of a lack of knowledge and therefore an ambition to go out and find it. It was a golden age of reporting and reporting in the larger sense, beyond just reporters and foreign correspondents, but to someone like Bob Gersoni as well. I mean, his technique is all about one-to-one encounters. Tell us how that actually works. Well, Gersoni started with the idea that the peasant or refugee he was interviewing was an expert, whereas he was not an expert. They were an expert in what had happened to them. And therefore, he was there to learn from them about the situation, about what happened to them. And therefore, he treated them with the uh, with utter deference and respect. He didn't look down at them because he depended on them for wisdom. He knew that um, and he also knew that simply because someone was illiterate did not mean that they did not have a good memory. So illiterate people can have excellent memories as to what had happened to them. And if you just listen to them, you will learn as much from them as you would from a, from a very sophisticated person. So Gersoni started out uh, always sitting on the ground before them. He never asked for their name, explaining that he did not want to get them into trouble. But he always asked for their age, the size of their family, their their ethnicity, their village, and just about everything about them so that he could collate these hundreds of interviews, say in Mozambique or Uganda or Rwanda or wherever, and, and come up with an analytical whole. And, whole. and he, he also... Because he didn't identify them by name, he would identify them in his notebooks by a a, a particular uh, characteristic. Maybe it was something they wore. Maybe it was the way that they spoke. Um, Because he wanted to preserve their humanity, their individualism. Um, He didn't want them to melt into some mass. And when he reread his notes and there was this individual characteristic, he would then remember the person as an individual. And he always said, never ask leading questions. Um, You know, the key things people will tell you, especially if you never ask, they'll tell you in order to fill the silences so long as you keep silent. He was a great listener. And this that was the, the root of what he is. He's a great listener who went on to become a great briefer of high officials as well, one should note. And I guess, I mean, that's the point, isn't it? That as you say in the book, it's about how does he turn speaking to ordinary people into something useful that what he's learning in the field is going to be integral to briefing and then ultimately to policy formulation. Yes. And that all came. Another thing about Gersoni we haven't mentioned so far. In addition to serving in Vietnam, he worked in the commodity trade before Vietnam and after he dropped out of high school. His father was very successful in the commodity trade and he got Bob Gersoni a job. And 
Gersoni always had a math mind. He did not have a liberal arts mind. He was not attracted to causes like many human rights activists. He approached his subjects mathematically and analytically. And the truth of a situation of who is to blame for certain atrocities would come out in the analysis into, you know, with hundreds of interviews, feeding them through a computer program. This one said this here, 300 miles away, I interviewed someone else who said exactly the same thing and corroborated the same facts. Therefore, we can say that. It was a lot of that kind of stuff and way of and way of working. Yeah, I found that fascinating, that idea of the commodity broker. As, as, as you point out, he's not really a visual thinker. He's conceptual in what he's doing. He's very abstract. Uh, landscape did not affect him uh, <laughs> at, at all. And, um, and if, you know, if you ask him who are the most valuable people in human rights, he would say agronomists because they understand how agriculture works in the developing world. And because he was in the commodity trade, he was very sensitive to prices of crops. And, you know, and he did enormously good work for the U.S. government in Plan Colombia to see if their crop substitution program to wean farmers off growing coca for the production of cocaine was actually working. And so only Gersoni could have traveled around southern and eastern Colombia interviewing farmers about substitution. It required a real expertise, which he had from his work in the commodity trade. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes, like a broker, he's actually called upon to make a call on futures. Um, uh, just in case any listeners are not really taking on board just how uh, consequential some of these reports were. For example, in Nepal in 2003, it's a binary call that he's having to make about whether Maoists were genocidal extremists like the Camarouge in Cambodia. So this this is really kind of knife-edge stuff that he's involved yes. with here. Yes, and he went to each project, to each assignment with great trepidation. As you said, he had to make a binary call in Nepal. It wasn't so much a human rights issue. It was an analytical geopolitical issue. And he, after interviewing dozens upon dozens of, of peasants in central and western Nepal, he came to the conclusion that the, that, the, that the Nepalese Maoists would not be like the Khmer Rouge if ever they got into power, that they did not have a totalizing philosophy. They were unable in the regions that they controlled to institute mass action of any sort. And therefore, he played down the, you know, the, the likelihood that they would emerge like the Khmer Rouge. And events have proved him correct because a few, you know, Gersoni was in Nepal, I believe in 2002, uh, right before the Iraq war. And, and the Maoists did eventually come to power in Nepal, and they were not like the Khmer Rouge. Now, I suppose he's most famous for Rwanda in 1994 and the so-called Gassoni Report. Uh, as you point out, I mean, this is one of the most brutal experiences of the 20th century. So again, the stakes could hardly have been higher, both for the people in Rwanda, but also for him too, professionally. 
Yes, uh, Rwanda was somewhat it was somewhat of a, a, a of an irony because he Gersoni brilliant long reports on Nepal on Nor- the Lord's Resistance Army in northern Uganda. They're almost literary, but they did not achieve the fame of the so-called Gersoni report on Rwanda, which was only a brief. 14 pages of no literary value, which nobody was able to read. And because nobody could get their hands on it, it achieved this almost mythic significance in the human rights community. And also, Gersoni only went to Rwanda by accident, because Brian Atwood, who at the time was the administrator of USAID, had suddenly remembered about Gersoni after sitting next to Gersoni's wife on a plane into into Zaire. So there's a lot of ironies in the Rwanda story, but basically this is what happened. Gersoni went to Rwanda immediately after the genocide in which a Hutu regime orchestrated the killings of up to 850,000 ethnic Tutsis. A new regime took power. It was controlled by ethnic Tutsis, the victims of the genocide. And it was assumed in Washington, in Geneva, in in New York, at UN and, and, and State Department headquarters, that the new regime were the good guys and the old regime were the bad guys, it, you know, for killing almost a million people. So Gersoni goes around Rwanda for weeks and weeks and weeks, uh, travels the length and breadth of the small country and, and its borderlands, and comes back with some horrifying news that nobody wants to hear, which is that the new government, the so-called good guys, the ethnic Tutsi-run government, was in the process of of mass murdering tens of thousands of ethnic Hutus. It was not a genocide like the previous government, which killed up to a million. This was at maximum 30,000 dead, but it was methodical and it was planned out. And nobody wanted to hear it because it complicated the policy. People, you know, the UN and the US wanted to get four square, 100% behind the new regime. Um, in order to, you know, in order to bring the country to order and to have the good guys run thing. And then they, then Gersoni tells them they're not such good guys. So the long and the short of it was Gersoni was attacked later completely vindicated. But they used the UN and the US used the report without giving Gersoni any credit. They used to the report to bring pressure to bear on the new regime led by Paul Kagame, who is still in power today, bring pressure to bear on the new regime to stop the killings. And they did stop the killings. I mean, it's interesting because you you say in the book that although this is his biggest play, that it's actually not his best work. I mean, to some degree, he mishandles the politics. And I was quite struck, actually, in reading it, that the UN's more cynical Kofi Annan actually emerges quite well here in understanding that sense of the art of the possible uh, in the politics here. Yes. Look, Kofi Annan is a very complicated figure. I mean, um, he has uh, he has, uh, you know, he has supporters and he he has detractors. But the job of Kofi, one of the jobs of Kofi Annan, see, here was the crux of the divide. Gersoni was not interested in the politics of it at all. He was only interested in finding out who killed these 30,000 people. That was it. 
you know? That was his job, and he found it out. And it was a very inconvenient truth for people like Kofi Annan, uh, you know, who had to deal with this new Rwanda regime. And by the way, there was no obvious alternative to this new Rwandan regime. Policymakers at the UN and, and, and Washington were obsessed with Rwanda's drifting back into anarchy after the genocide. So they were sort of forced to work with this new regime because it seemed organized and efficient. And here was Bob Gersoni complicating the, pro the policy, saying that these guys are guilty of mass murder. Uh, and, and so what they did was, and it's somewhat understandable, they gave Gersoni no credit. They basically shoved the report under the rug, but they used the report privately to pressure the new regime to stop the killings. And to me, that's not such a bad outcome. Yeah, Anand is one of the characters that I came away with a different view of having read the book. But in general, uh, you say that Gassoni is much more interesting than the big shots that you've met in your career. Yes. Uh, I mean, someone who yeah. does not come out of this book well uh, is Richard Holbrook. He's, he seems almost the antithesis of the Gassoni approach. For him, it's very much top down and uh, a massive ego. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was very careful in how I wrote about Richard Holbrook in the book. He comes up, he comes up in the book occasionally. You know, I didn't have an agenda for for Richard Holbrook or uh, others in the book. You know, what I suppose, you know, I've had my own encounters with Richard Holbrook and my basic guess was and I told the reader this was that if Gersoni see Holbrook left government just as Gersoni was emerging with his report on Bosnia, so the two never, never got to meet on the Balkans uh, at all. So it's a what if kind of thing. And my guess is knowing Holbrook, that Holbrook would have listened to Gersoni, would have screamed at him, but then Gersoni would have done to Holbrook what he did to everyone else. Gersoni just wears you down with evidence. It's almost boring but he just wears you down. His briefings last hours. And, and Holbrook would have come away a believer, but would not have given Gersoni credit for anything, essentially, but would have implicated the essence of what Gersoni was telling him. Yeah, it's interesting that word evidence because I think if there's a if there's an agenda in this book, it, it seems to me that uh, that is that essentially the world that you're describing there is very different in terms of the one that we have today, where there's less evidence and much more is about opinion. Um, so you know, I, I guess the question is whether you think there are any new Bob Gasonis out there, or whether a Bob Gasoni can even exist in the modern. world world. Yes. Uh, see, Bob Gersoni was not, in, in, you know, in a certain way, Bob Gersoni is not interesting. He doesn't have causes. He doesn't have, you, you know, he's not, he's not interested in ideology. He doesn't promote policies. He's a field worker. He's the ultimate field worker who goes around collecting evidence, and that is his glory in a way. So the question is, can, can the U.S. State Department, can USAID be open to new Gersonis? And I believe it can, um, because um, 
because, you know, USAID and the State Department actually started going downhill before Donald Trump. It started after the end of the Cold War, where there was less of a sense of mission. And as Hemingway said, it started gradually, then it became sudden under 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 Trump. Um, but I think it can. It's not a question of discovering new Bob Gersonis. It's a question of of constructing a bureaucracy where people are allowed to get out of the embassy, get into the field, and are allowed to come back with with news that goes against the policy and yet still be heard. Yeah, I was very struck in reading the book how often you used the word sensibility, uh, not least um, in saying that Gassoni himself spans the yawning gap in sensibilities between idealism and realism, human rights and national interests. So, I mean, if if the United States is going to rediscover that sensibility, how does it go about doing it in the kind of um, attracting young people into the State Department? to do the kind of things that you were talking about? Yeah, I think, you know, it has to combine two things. I mean, the United States is not Sweden, as I've said. You know, it, it's a with, great With power. apologies to our Swedish listeners. Yes, <laughs> yes. But it's a great power with national, pivotal, geopolitical interests. And people coming into, this, into state, into USAID, into CIA, they have to be imbued with that. But they also have to understand as the life of Bob Gersoni demonstrates, that uh, policies have real palpable effects on ordinary people. And if you and if you forget about that, if you just if you just think of policy in, in, in the sense of being on the right side of history, you turn it into an abstraction, which can be very dangerous. So the book is The Good American, The Epic Life of Bob Gassoni, the U.S. government's greatest humanitarian. It's written by my guest, Robert Kaplan, and published by Random House. Uh, but for now, Bob, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.